Welcome to the only show dedicated to a new way of delivering healthcare. This new model has no name, but let's go ahead and call it direct contracting or digital first care. The new way centers on opting out of the games bigs play with their rigged dice, their crooked game board, and their purchased referees. And if you're looking for a future where everyone wins, that's the doc, the consumer, the employer, and with assured amazing outcomes and measurably lower costs that are ranging up to 60%, you're in the right place. I'm Ron Barshop, your host. I'm glad you're here. Welcome to the new healthcare economy. We paused this pandemic to get back to really the most important healthcare story that hasn't been covered because the pandemic took all the air out of the room in the press, and as it should. We have really two healthcare systems. We have wealth care and poor care. Poor care, in my humble opinion, represents well over half of 185 million American workers, plus the 10 million employed, plus 30 million uninsured. So that's 130 million who are functionally or actually uninsured thanks to high deductible insurance out of the reach of most. We also have 44 million on Medicare, 80 million on Medicaid, and 19 million veterans and in defense health. So 57 million of us basically are in wealth care, which is maybe more, maybe less, a 17% of Americans that are getting what they need. And there is no bigger health care story that isn't covered. The abandonment of the hourly class to poor care is the big story of 2021. Deductibles have only been rising since 2009, and most people don't have that kind of cushion to use their deductibles. So they're out in the cold. They really don't have insurance if they can't use it. What is the answer? The answer is not Medicrap care for all, and it's not in reforming the bigs from EBITDA addiction. Forget that. It's not creating a new era manifesting unicorns and fairy dust dreams either. It's here actually upon us, and it's holistic, and it's proven, and it's called direct contracting or digital first care paid for by employees on a monthly subscription basis. And currently, just through the folks on my show, we know there's 25 million patients, perhaps as many as 30 or 40 million. We don't know because we haven't had everybody on the show, which is just not getting Wall Street's full attention because a couple of these have gone public. Well, who wins in the new way of new way care? Consumers win, doctors win, employers win, costs win, outcomes win. It, it's a win. It's an unstoppable win, in fact, for everybody. And it's a future where everybody is a winner. Today, I'm excited to introduce you to a guest. Uh, Bill Besterman is a board-certified internist who practiced preventive cardiology for 20 years, and he's got a quite an interesting resume, so I'm going to take that rare time and actually read you some of this because it's prescient to what we're talking about today. He's been heavily involved with healthcare reform and quality improvements, so I think he's going to have a lot to say about the new transparency initiatives that are all busting out all over. He wrote the very first article in America on systemic approach to the metabolic syndrome. And he also was a senior clinical advisor for one of the blues in Louisiana. And that initiative saved $27 per member per month at the one-year mark while reducing hospitalizations, length of stay, and specialty referrals. That, again, that's a future where everybody wins. He's currently the president and chief medical officer of Epigenics Health. And um, Bill, do you have anything you want to say about what I brought up in the top of the show? Well, sure. Our healthcare system has all the problems that you went over, but uh, it, it's even more than that. So if you look at uh, countries 
where the evidence is really followed and they use best practices, like Singapore, um, they live longer and their impact on gross domestic product is one fourth of what it is. So in Singapore, they live a little longer and they only spend a little less than 5% of GDP on healthcare. Uh, here we spend a little more than 8%. The value in our healthcare system is not very great. And there are all kinds of reasons for that. And by the way, everybody in Singapore has healthcare coverage. So if you use best practices to provide healthcare, uh, it's a lot less expensive and you can cover everybody. So in the United States, uh, we don't provide coverage in the early game where uh, you, you have high blood pressure and diabetes. But then if your high blood pressure and diabetes go on to put you on dialysis because you didn't get the attention you needed, then you automatically go on Medicare in your cup. So it's just an upside down crazy system. And uh, optimal medical therapy for cardiovascular and related conditions is one part of the answer to that problem is what I've been well, you, you said something that I just really, that stuck with me. You said success is going to require a combination of new science, new systems, and a new payment model to um, involve all the stakeholders that I talked about at the top of the show. Do you think that this direct contracting might be an answer that does all of what you just, uh, what you said? Well, new payment models are definitely part of what needs to happen, and specifically, in cardiovascular and related conditions, uh, the fee-for-service uh, model of payment is just a complete barrier. You can't get any headway uh, as long as that's in place. But if you pay people to get the blood pressure down, the cholesterol down, and the sugar down using uh, best practices, and then you reward them for reducing ER visits, hospitalizations, and other complications. It's not that hard to do. Uh, you can definitely make progress. So you're a fan of value-based care, I'm assuming. I'm all about it. Okay, got it. All right, and, and that does make sense if I see it as full risk. Like ChenMed is a full risk VBC, but there's a lot of VBC that are just making more profits, and they're not moving the dial on the areas you're talking about. GenMed's a great example. Uh, so I've actually spoken uh, to one of their leaders, and the example he gave to me is uh, a COVID hospitalization cost about $60,000. Uh, but they, their patients have five to six, five, six, or seven chronic conditions. They're disadvantaged people. And so they hear from their doctor once a month, they hear from the office once a week. And one of those weekly conversations encouraged uh, those patients to get a COVID shot. Well, disadvantaged patients many times aren't the prosperous people you're talking about. They're, they're, they're in poor care. 
they don't have two cars. They present that as a barrier to getting into the clinic to get the shot. Um, the Chin Med people just say, okay, let us get an Uber ride to get you to the shot and we'll take care of that. When can you come? And then they set up the Uber ride. The $6 Uber ride uh, saves enough $60,000 hospitalizations. Yeah, if you put 10,000 people in, a, in an Uber, that's gonna save one visit to the hospital. Well, I don't know about that. It's, it's, it's more than that. Um, it's enough that they're confident they're making money. Okay. So your core expertise is really around comprehensive solutions that reduce costs, reduce visits, reduce uh, downstream costs by focusing on chronic cardiometabolic conditions, lifestyle disease. So what is your, give us some of the ideas that have worked with your patients or patients that you've consulted with to re reverse these uh, cardio and hypertensive diseases. Well, uh, let's just start with the basics. So if you look at the way medical care is delivered in the U.S. today, it, it's pretty much the way it was years ago. You get a doctor in an office and you have a shorter visit than you used to have. And the doctor treats you based on what he remembers from all he's read. And uh, often the doctor gets distracted because you got back pain and a rash. And the dangerous uh, risk factors that you have don't get the attention they should. And, uh, you know, that's what we call usual care. So usual care, care that most people receive. On the other side, are people who get uh, evidence-based care consistent with best practices. And so they don't just get their blood pressure lowered. They lower it with medications that are actually antioxidants, that are anti-inflammatory. Uh, they reduce the thickening of the artery, the enlargement of the heart. And, and the core processes that are causing the disease in the first place. So if you look at um, medications like an ACE inhibitor for high blood pressure, like lisinopril, uh, it lowers the blood pressure, uh, but it also makes the artery more normal. So when the diagnosis of high blood pressure is made, we already know that there's disease present. The artery is thicker than normal, and it doesn't expand as well when you exercise. And so when you take lisinopril, yes, you lower the blood pressure, but you also cause the artery to be more normal by thinning it and uh, making it expand more uh, easily. Uh, similarly, with metformin for diabetes, if you lower the blood sugar to the same level by uh, using another drug versus metformin, the metformin people lower their risk of a heart attack 40% and their risk of all adverse diabetes outcomes. And the blood sugar is the same. So it's not all about the sugar. And then when you combine all of those interventions, uh, you go after aggressive goals for pressure, sugar, and cholesterol, 
using medications that have benefit beyond their impact on the risk factor. Let me ask you a question. I, I love the medication solution because it's the easy pill, the easy button. But are there, in all of your years of, of, of working in this space, have you ever seen any comprehensive programs that have reduced obesity? There's, there is, if you talk to obesity researchers, they know what works, but nobody's doing it. Is anybody actually in the field out there reversing metabolism by uh, and teaching people how to eat the right kind of foods and how to walk more and how to sleep better? Are you aware of any models out there that are working on a larger scale for that? I'm not aware of any that are really successful on a larger scale, but I, I think the answer is pretty clear. And I, I've done that with my own patients. I worked, of course, I treated a higher risk uh, diabetic and hypertensive patient population for Eastman Chemical. And in the diabetic population, the type 2 diabetics are almost all overweight. And 60% of my patients lost weight, whereas in most diabetic treatment, uh, patients gain weight. And that's in part because insulin and other medicines like ureas, uh, gliburide, um, Avandia, those medicines all cause weight gain. And so I steadfastly avoided those. Then I helped under, people understand 50 years ago, most people were slender. Well, what changed? Um, food, mo many of us are eating a lot more food that's prepared or we're eat eating outside the home in restaurants and so forth. Well, those people know how to put together fat, salt, sugar, and processed carb carbohydrates in perfect combinations that are literally addictive. They're genius. And so uh, the former head of the FDA, David Kessler, uh, weighed 70 pounds more than he does now. He figured this out and he's been eating real food, lean meat, eggs, low fat dairy products, seafood, fruits, vegetables, beans, peas, and nuts. I've been doing the same thing. He lost 70 pounds. I lost four of my patients lost over 100. So if you're eating real food, that drive's not there so that you'll just keep when you're not hungry, the more you eat, the more you want. Um, but if you're eating that food, it's, it's, you can't cut back on it uh, any more than you can cut back on cocoa. Do you believe in intermittent fasting where you give an 18-hour break from eating and then you just eat in a six-hour, four-hour, three-hour window? Do you believe that is a possible solution for folks? Sure. Um, there's actually an article in the New England Journal of Medicine within the last year or two that talks about intermittent fasting. And this is the most fascinating thing about the whole thing to me. Restricting calories, intermittent fasting, exercise, ACE inhibitors like lisinopril, angiotensin receptor blockers like losartan, statins, metformin, and drugs like Jardians all activate uh, the same metabolic pathway, blocking the effects of increased oxidative particles, 
that accelerate aging and uh, make you get chronic disease earlier. And so all of those interventions block that same uh, signaling. Um, it's really funny. I got so fascinated with it, just dug and dug. And it turns out that genes that you need uh, to crank up, genes that you need to develop normally as a fetus and child uh, are switched off pretty much when you're a healthy young adult. And then they're reactivated by things like abdominal fat, red smoke, uh, to cause cardiovascular disease and cancer. And all those interventions we talked about um, interfere with the products of those genes um, to slow aging and delay chronic disease, improve chronic disease. You know, from listening to you, I think you're going to recommend to healthy, your healthy patients and your chronic patients, everybody should be taking metformin because if there's a 40% less risk of heart, um, why not, right? If you, if you have nothing to lose, there's no real side effects, right? Well, uh, the, the main side effects, well, if you let these diseases run rampant for decades, like we, we tend to do, we have a, a medical system organized around rescuing people late. Um, if you've got kidney disease and they're not working very well, metformin can accumulate and that's a problem. And uh, most of the side effects uh, otherwise are, are nuisances. And if you take metformin properly, there most people can take it. Are you gonna also throw on top of that stack a statin would be a good idea to take healthy or not healthy? Well, it's interfering with the, yes, it's interfering with the uh, pathways that accelerate aging and make you sick earlier. Let, let me just talk about metformin a little bit because I think its benefits have very little to do with the level of glucose. So uh, the evidence is it lowers heart attack just taking metformin lowers your risk of heart attack by 40%. Well, I got very intrigued by that. You, you've got to explain that. It turns out that if you have a stent today, your heart artery, the stent is in, has medication in it called rapamycin. It's, it's an antibiotic, but it's also anti-inflammatory and it interferes with scar tissue formation. Uh, so rapamycin leaks from the stent and it keeps the stent from being clogged up again with inflammation and scar tissue. And so instead of a stent lasting uh, for six months, it lasts for years. So that's a very established part of medical practice. It does that by inhibiting one of these genes I talked about. Metformin does exactly the same thing. It inhibits uh, a master genetic switch. And so it's used too little too late. If you take it when you're pre-diabetic, um, your chance of becoming diabetic is reduced by 30%. And that's just $4 a month. 
So clearly everybody should be taking metformin. I mean, even if you're not borderline diabetic or, or if you're healthy, you should be taking metformin, period. You know, strangely enough, only uh, 3%. The ADA uh, advocates taking metformin in certain people with prediabetes. Only 3% of them are doing it. So, you know, I'd settle for getting diabetics and pre-diabetics with metformin if only 3% of pre-diabetics are taking it. It's so odd that that in, that research was done by the NIH. I'm pre-diabetic myself, and I take metformin, and I go into a doctor's office, and they say, oh, you're diabetic. Yeah, it's interesting. We had a guest named David Sinclair, and for those of you listening that have heard this, it's one of our most downloaded shows, but David is a Harvard researcher. He's, he's got the biological age of 21 year old, but he's in his fifties. And his research ha is basically that aging is optional. That you can actually reverse aging with rapamycin, metformin, a thing called NAD, NMN is another one, and then resveratrol, which you can all get on Amazon. And the quality, the quality is uneven when you get it on Amazon, but he takes all five of those and his father is reversing aging. His mice are reversing aging. His nematodes are reversing aging. His fruit flies are reversing aging. And now he thinks it's going to be in the human. He thinks it'll be part of our culture in another 10 years. Well, so let's, let's just, you're interested in the disparities between poor care and wealthy care. Think about this. If you have had a heart attack, and you combine the interventions that I've talked about, uh, aggressive risk factor reduction, uh, using ACE inhibitors or ARB, statins, uh, metformin if you're diabetic, and an aspirin. I mean, it's not that complicated. Um, and you really go after it. So in this study, 91% of patients were on a statin versus about half of this population in usual care. And the impact, so this was done at Kaiser Permanente, 628 patients in each arm of the study, same institution, same buildings, normal medical therapy versus usual care. The OMT people, normal medical therapy people, 90% reduction in mortality if they enrolled early. The savings was $21,900 patient per year or $50 a day. The cost they estimated to be $1 a day. And, and the return was $60 a day, which is the best I've ever heard of in healthcare. Okay. So a dollar a day versus $60 a day. That's impressive. Hey, I wanted to switch subjects because we've got a lot of ground to cover, not much time. I am fascinated with something that you brought up when there's heart disease treatments brought out, procedures brought out for uh, the population. You found out that they don't work on women sometimes, right? Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, sure. Um, and, and I treated about 25 women like this. Um, this might be one, something you want to look up. So it's called the Women's Ischemic Syndrome Evaluation. It's the WISE study, W-I-S-E. And this, again, was sponsored by the NIH. 
but the uptake on it has been pretty pathetic. And what they showed is that many women who have heart attacks don't have obstructive coronary disease. So they don't have blockages. Our whole system is arranged around opening blockages. That's not the way heart attacks occur. So yes, a blockage is a marker for the fact that you have uh, coronary artery disease. So if you have a blockage anywhere, you have cholesterol plaque everywhere. But heart attacks occur usually in a part of the system remote from the fixed blockage. A cholesterol plaque will rupture or erode, comes in contact with the blood, and causes a clot. And that's what causes the heart attack. That's why aspirin prevents heart attack. It's uh, anticoagulant. That's why a clot stops a heart attack that's already in progress. It fits everything we know, but women are much more likely than men to widely distribute cholesterol plaque rather than having uh, local blockages, local chronic blockages. And so they are most they are more likely than uh, to have heart attacks in the absence of blockages. Well, to this day, I, I saw my last patient three or four years ago, but when I left practice, doctors were still doing stress tests and catheterizations on these women. And if they didn't have a blockage, they would tell them, this, your heart's okay don't have a heart artery disease. Um, it's probably your esophagus or your stomach. Uh, or worse than that, um, go home and take your Valium and Prozac. Everything's going to be all right. And then when I took those 25 women and applied those interventions that we just talked about in optimal medical therapy, um, they quit going to the emergency room. Uh, they, they no longer had repeated chest pain. Um, and they were much safer from a heart attack. And these, these were some of the most grateful women I ever treated. And, and it's really amazing. I talked about the impact after a heart attack, these women on average cost $750,000 over the course of their lives in costs related to their heart disease. And that's because it's not properly diagnosed, it's not properly addressed, and they keep having chest pain, and they keep going back to the emergency room and being admitted. I have another big subject that I wanna cover before we sign off today, Bill. Um, the transparency initiatives that are busting out all over. We now have, not all, but most hospitals are complying with the regulations to post 300 uh, different procedures cost on their websites. And, um, and smart people are digesting that and making it uh, understandable for self-insured employers and for people that need to buy those products uh, directly or indirectly like third-party administrators. Um, and a lot of hospitals are saying, I'll pay, I'll pay the $103,000 fine. I don't care. 300 bucks a day is a rounding error for our hospital. Um, then the insurance companies have the same mandate, but it's much more broad. 
um, starting January 1 of next year. How do you feel about these transparency initiatives after working on this issue for 20 years in your career? Well, you know, I think I think it's just absolutely essential and it's incredible that we don't have that kind of information available for patients. You know, we just talked about the disconnect between uh, what we know about heart disease and the way it's generally treated. And if you look at it, there's another whole body of 15 studies that show that optimal medical treatment alone in stable cardiac patients is just as protective as optimal medical therapy plan. And, you know, um, talk about transparency. Most people who go to a hospital with chest pain don't understand that. They don't hear a thing that uh, tells them, uh, that really gives them informed. Uh, you have stable angina. Uh, if we treat with this with medication alone, you'll do just as well as if we use a stent. And um, by the way, within a year, 70% of patients like you are, are going to not have chest pain any longer. And so, you know, the whole thing is not transparent. Um, I, I don't think very many people who have a serious cardiac problem get informed. Most people that I've treated um, thought when they had their uh, stent, they were made safe from cardiovascular events like heart attack. And, and you know, that's just not the case. I think if you ask 10 people on the street, um, what will keep you from having a heart attack or dying suddenly, most of them would say opening the artery. Um, so there's not much about it that's transparent. And when you start talking with patients about how it all works and what they can do about it, they're much more um, trusting and likely to do what you recommend. So, you know, giving people straight information and developing trust is critical. Yeah, something that the big systems are not really remarkably good at. Um, let's talk about how people can find you if they want to reach out to you and ask more questions. Okay. All right. Well, um, I've got a site on Substack called Slowing Aging and Delaying Chronic Disease Development that they can, if they just put those terms in the computer, uh, they can easily get to that. It goes over all of this in detail. And then my email address is whbester at gmail.com. Okay. And if you could fly a banner over America with one simple message for everybody to follow, what would that message be? You can have better health care now. It can, you can live longer and you can spend less money doing it. Thank you very much. That's a great message. Well, we uh, enjoyed visiting with you. You're uh, you've been, you, you're a lion who's been fighting this battle for a lot longer than I have. And uh, I always learn by talking to folks with the wisdom. So thanks for your time. It's a pleasure to be here and thank you for including me.
Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.